Great. Hello, everyone. How how is my sound? Is it better? Okay, great. Um, so it's a sunny day here in Allegheny, New York, and it's about 2212, which is when my internet connection has historically had problems since I've been here. Uh, not all the time, but for some reason, sunny days and around this time of the day, I've had a couple connection issues, but uh, the issue before was my own doing and I fixed that. So, so hopefully uh, it'll be all right. If I do uh, drop out, the, the connection issues have only ever lasted about two minutes. So I, I'll just ask you to, to meditate for two minutes and, and I'll be back. But really I've only had one or two issues in uh, several weeks now, so it should be okay. Um, so, all right, we're going to begin. Um, thanks everyone for being here. Um, it's good to see all of you. And uh, today's talk is titled Going in Circles Again. And the original talk was Going in Circles Again, dot, 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 good. Um, because that's kind of what I'll be talking about. It's a, a negative phrase. Uh, you know, I'm going in circles again, um, but I'll put a, a different spin on it. Although I actually decided the good parts is, is not quite accurate anyways, because it could be good or bad. Um, and it actually is, is probably both, I suppose. Uh, so a little bit of background uh, for this talk. It began with a Dokusan uh, talk I had with Mado a few weeks ago, three, four weeks ago, uh, middle of January, I suppose. And at that point, uh, since probably the uh, beginning of December, right around the time that my semester finished up, for the next six weeks there or so, I felt like I had gone in a circle because um, I had I had barely been practicing for about six weeks. It was uh, maybe the longest, most substantial lapse, if you want to call it that, if lapse is even the right word that I've had in my practice since uh, really since I began a daily practice in about, I think it was 2013. Um, I'd had times where I didn't practice much for a week or two, uh, but six weeks was quite an extended time. And I, I did sit occasionally, but I, I found that it was very hard to sit for even 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, I would become very restless and um, yeah, there were, and, and just get up and go do something else. There were a lot of factors. One, I was on break basically that whole time. We had a very long winter break. And so I was sleeping in a lot as uh, my tendency is to do. Uh, again, another cycle that I go through, cycles of sleeping in that uh, are, are difficult for me. And it's not just getting enough sleep, it's like sleeping 10 or 11 hours instead of eight. So, uh, but it, it makes it so that I'm very restless in the morning. I wanna get my day started. So instead of waking up and meditating as I prefer to do, I just go straight to breakfast. And then by that time I've had some caffeine and I can't really sit uh, very easily. And I attended service in there, um, but even during the 20 minutes, I found myself with my video off, getting up and walking around and being very restless, quite frankly. Um, 
interestingly, for whatever reason, even when we would meet in the Zendo, I would find myself very restless uh, during the meditations during service. I'm not, not sure what that is, but always a rather restless meditation for me. So anyways, it was the talk that I had with Mado was about these, these cycles of sort of uh, going, leaving and coming back and feeling like, you know, I'm just stuck, stuck in a rut, which um, I imagine that comes from having a wagon and getting stuck in a rut. But now when we get stuck in a rut with our cars, especially me trying to get up my driveway out here in the country with all this sort of a base of two feet of snow on the ground, uh, spinning, no, the tire is just spinning and not, not helping me at all. Um, so it, it felt like that a bit. And by the time I had talked to Mado, I think I had kind of returned to my practice. I'd been meditating for several days in a row or a week straight again, and was starting to feel, um, starting to feel a bit more normal and starting to feel that my practice was a bit more stable. Um, and so just, we just talked a lot about these, these cycles in our practice. And so that's kind of what this talk is about, uh, different, different takes on these cycles. Um, remember when I first started meditating and started a daily practice, I felt like a superhuman, I think as a lot of people do. Oh, I have all this, I have all this extra attention and patience. I don't get mad at people when they cut me off. I just take a breath and let it go and, and thought, man, my life, you know, I, I've, I've figured it out. I've got it. Um, all I gotta do is wake up and sit for a half hour and you know, life will be smooth sailing. And lapses would come. I was still in grad school and I would still go out and party some on the weekends. That part of my life was kind of fading out. Um, but I would still do it sometimes, go and, and party on Friday and, and wake up with a bit of a hangover on Saturday and not want to sit. And then Sunday rolls around and because I didn't get any work done on Saturday, I had to cram on Sunday because it's grad school and you've got all sorts of reading to do and I would miss a couple days sitting. And Monday would come around and I would feel out of whack and I would get really mad at myself for this. Man, you, you, you had things figured out, you knew um, you, you know that if you wake up and sit a half hour, you're, uh, you know, you're superhuman. What are you doing going out and drinking and, you know, ruining this, this beautiful practice that you've found. And so when I would break the cycle at the beginning, it was this sort of anger. And, and as I learned and, and read books, I, I learned to, one, that this is normal, and two, that obviously being angry at yourself and having this attitude of this, this strict attitude that uh, you can't break is, is very unproductive for obvious reasons. Uh, and then it was longer breaks. Over winter break, I would go home and visit friends and I would be staying at one of my siblings' houses and just out of routine and I wouldn't be particularly uh, active with my practice for maybe even a week or two. And I would think, oh, I've lost it. What is this? I've, you know, what, what do I do? I, you know, how do I get back on track? I'm, you know, I got, I've, I've lost all this ground that I've gained. Um, and it was sort of a new level. It wasn't so much anger, but more disappointment and, and almost a kind of fear like that I had lost. I'd lost this continuity of my practice. 
And I think that's one thing that struck me about this last break in my practice is that I was not all the time. There were certainly moments where I'd be very frustrated with it. I just think, man, why can't I wake up and go sit, just lounge here in bed under the covers for two hours, um, doing nothing or, or being distracted or on my phone or sleeping partly. Um, but the, the break in the cycle was um, much less alarming in a lot of ways, I think, for a number of reasons. One, I, I just tried to have self-compassion with the, the, the madness of the pandemic and everyone, uh, almost everyone I know is in a place where they're struggling. And uh, I had a difficult year that I had just finished the semester, which had really drained me and was just sort of had this freedom that I was just, oh, I'm just gonna lie here. Um, it's probably a bit depressed as well. Um, not very active depression where I was having um, sad thoughts or, or, or feeling really down, but just such a lack of motivation, I think. Uh, probably maybe, maybe just burnt out is a better word. And my practice nevertheless, I think because I've, as I said, I've been practicing, I don't know, seven, seven years now or something like that. Not a, not a terribly long time, but not a, not a short amount of time either. Um, my practice felt with me regardless um, in, in particular critical moments. Um, I felt that it was there somehow or another. Um, allowing me some space, even with even with moments where um, that were that were more yeah more difficult to deal with, even though I wasn't meditating. Uh, one in particular that stands out is I traveled to Reading, Pennsylvania, to visit a friend of mine, um, and he's a, my friend's a big poker player, and I play a little bit with him online, not against him because he's much better than me, small stakes, I think I've mentioned this before. And uh, he's got a small group of friends and they've been pretty, they've kept their little bubble and I was basically seeing no one. And they had a poker game uh, going on and, and I thought I felt safe enough that it was a small kind of closed group, met every couple of weeks. And so I decided to try out this poker game, um, which wasn't particularly low stakes. Um, but I figured, I, you know, I, I, I'm not going to just keep gambling. If I lose, you know, a certain amount, I'll stop. I wasn't too worried about that. And, and I know at least two of the people there were probably on my level or even worse, which means I have a chance, that, you know, a decent chance. It's funny in poker. It's a weird game. You really pray. You hope that you're people that are playing people that are worse than you. When I play chess, I like playing people that are better. I learn, but poker sort of prey on, on weakness. It's uh, something that one has to really consider. Um, but anyways, the one guy that actually runs the game, who's kind of the worst of the lot, plays very wildly, which means he can win a lot, but often it means he loses a lot. And I think that night he lost over $1,000. Um, and I guess he's an accountant at a good company. And I don't know, maybe it's just part of, part of the hobby for him that he you know loses money to his friends who don't have as good a jobs as him. Um, but Obviously he doesn't like this though. It's not like he likes losing that much money. Um, and he'd lost yeah, quite a bit of money and had been drinking. And at the end of the night when we were counting up all the money and he was doing all the counting, 
Um, he'd given me my money back and I double checked it, um, you know, as, as one would, it's a, you know, a few hundred dollars. I, I, I broke even for the night. I think I won maybe $50 or something, but was counting out the money and I thought it was $20 short and I checked it. I double checked it $20 short, huh? So I said something to him, Hey, it looks like I'm, I'm $20 short here. Um, can we, can we double check this? And, and this guy just lost it. He just couldn't handle it. Um, he had double checked it. He's an accountant himself. I think he had been, he's quite jovial the whole night despite losing all this money. Um, but he was really mad, accused me of uh, accusing him of trying to steal from me in his own home because it was actually hosted at his house and accused me of thinking he was stupid. And he's like, you watched me count this. I double checked it. You don't think I'm honest. And I don't know, it just, and you know, I wasn't in a place where I was going to be uh, confrontational about it. I just, um, oh no, actually he, he gave me 20 more dollars and I checked again and found two 20s that were very new that had stuck together. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. There's two of these stuck together. I didn't notice. And I gave the 20 back and that's when he, he lost it. Um, and I just had, you know, like I said, I wasn't about to try to be confrontational. The guy's a huge military, ex-military guy, and I'm in his own house, and he's, I'm not, you know, I have no sense of trying to confront or stand up to him. I just apologized profusely, but it was a moment, it's hard to explain, where uh, despite the fact that I had not been meditating and had, you know, I even had a couple of drinks and had been drinking almost every night for a few days that I was visiting my friend, which is very typical for me and makes me feel very out of whack, so to speak, um, just felt the sort of weird calmness in the situation that, that became critical um, and a perspective that, I don't know, it's, it's, it's hard to define, but at any rate, it just, I just felt like I had sort of my practice as an aid in this very awkward, very uncomfortable situation with this person I didn't know at all. I knew everyone else there, but, but not this particular individual. Um, so let's see, uh, a couple of thoughts. One is that um, coming back to practice is a way I realize of reaffirming your practice and appreciating it. Um, I think that you know, even, even practice has to be impermanent if, if all things are subject to impermanence. So the way we can perhaps take advantage of this um, or at least what feels like practice. Um, of course, Mado will, will assert, and, and I, I try to keep this in mind, that our practice is our whole lives and that you can't really stop practicing at any point, but meditation practice seems discontinuous at times. And coming back to it, man, I felt so much, it just felt so right after I had spent about a week meditating and, and sort of got, the first week was very difficult. I felt incredibly restless getting back into meditation. Um, but it, it really reaffirms. And even this, these, these lapses, these sort of critical moments where I felt my practice were, were, were ways of it affirming its importance to me and its, its central role in, in my life. Um, for me, it's also quite, a, quite humbling these, uh, these lapses, as I said, when I first started practicing, I felt like, man, I got things figured out. Um, and I can be, I can be very harsh with myself, which means, uh, by projection, I can be harsh with others, usually not outwardly, but, but in my own head. And 
these lapses actually, I think, help me understand lapses in other people. Um, certainly advantageous uh, for, for empathy and just being able to relate to people. And I've noticed that lapses in other parts of my life can, can be very useful as well. Um, guitar playing, for example. I, I play classical guitar and uh, it's, it's so finely nuanced that even a lapse of a few days can be uh, disruptive. Uh, you can start to hear changes in your playing. There's, uh, I've heard this quote attributed to about 10 musicians. Um, so I don't know who it is, but the quote something like from, I think I've heard it from Pablo Casals, who's one of the most famous cello players ever. Um, he said something like, if I stop practicing for one day, I can tell. If I stop practicing for two days, my wife can tell. And if I stop practicing for three days, the whole world can tell. And I'm not good enough to uh, maybe have effects like that, but, but to some degree, yeah, I really think that if I played you a recording of me not practicing for three days versus one where I've been consistent, uh, it's possible, you, it's very likely you could tell. And now I'm actually in the longest lapse of not playing guitar since I started playing guitar pretty close to it due to a, a finger injury, which I'm just, I think it's probably fine, but I'm waiting extra long to make sure it's fully healed. Uh, some weird nerve pain in my finger. So looking forward to get back to guitar, but when I've had lapses in my playing, uh, it always seems that I have some more nuance and I, I have a new appreciation for certain things. Um, I think perhaps because my awareness has expanded to other things, I hear it in a new context and uh, just to be able to play a particular melody, uh, you know, and I've been trying to play this one melody over and over and over again to get it right, it becomes a more mechanical thing and you sort of lose the, the fact that even if you're playing it at 60%, you know, beauty level or something, it's still just a beautiful melody. And that's something that seems to, to reaffirm after a break when I, when I take up a piece again, especially when I stop playing guitar again. And also sort of the, the miraculous nature of what we can do with our hands um, kind of amazes me that the, the precision we can build up. Yeah, again, you don't notice that when you're grinding day after day trying to learn this very difficult Bach piece. But when you step away and come back, you think, man, that's amazing that you can that one can uh, coordinate like that. Um, and to cite the uh, to me at this point, I've heard it so many times, it's sort of lost its meaning as I tell my students to not use truisms, but this one's a good one and it's from one of my favorite uh, people ever from Leonard Cohen who says, there's a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in. And I think these lapses in, in a lot of ways are places where the light gets in. Um, I said with, with practice, um, well, with guitar, it's obvious enough as I sort of start to appreciate the melody and with practice, um, we, need, we need these cracks. I mean, if we didn't have cracks, what are we doing practicing? Um, it doesn't make much sense. Um, and, you know, as I tell my students in Spanish, they get frustrated, oh, I'm so bad at Spanish. And I said, well, if you were really good at it, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> you know, it's, it's nonsense. And, you know, if we were... Um, if we were stone Buddhas, so to speak, instead of flesh and blood Buddhas with uh, cracks, <laughs> um, but, a, but a perfectly, you know, 
fisher free stone Buddha. Um, we wouldn't have a need to practice. A couple other more philosophical thoughts about this. Um, thinking about circles, I thought of uh, the fact that there's a very obvious circle in Zen practice, which is the sort of Zen logo, if you will, the, the circle, the, the black circle on, on white paper. And I looked up on Wikipedia today because I was like, hey, well, there must be a name for this. It's called the Enzo, which means circular form. And it says, a circle that is hand-drawn in one or two uninhibited brushstrokes to express some moments when the mind is free to let the body create. I'll come back to that create point in a moment, but going on, it says, the Enzo symbolizes absolute enlightenment, strength, elegance, the universe, and Mu, the void. It is characterized by a minimalism born of Chinese aesthetics. And I also thought of, you know, I was thinking, I was thinking about what does this circle mean? Um, it's actually quite a universal symbol. I'll read something here from the Dictionary of Symbols, which is a very neat book by Juan Eduardo Cirlot, C-I-R-L-O-T, a uh, book I definitely recommend. It's quite fascinating. It's exactly what it sounds like. And the circle is one of the longest entries in it. And just to read part of the entry here, it says, um, Let's see here. I lost my spot on the page. Oh, that's all right. Uh, but he, he cites other circles, the, uh, the grail in the center of the round table, the Hindu wheel of transformation, the Chinese P, not to mention the, uh, the wheel of samsara that we took a look at with Judy's Dharma talk a few weeks ago and uh, the circle in Zen. And what is it about this image that's uh, so, so, so engaging and interesting? And I think there's a lot of things behind it. Uh, one is that in Zen, I think it, it, it symbolizes both emptiness and fullness to some degree. And I thought of the, the figure ground image of the face and the vase that, that Mado often uses, where you can see the vase or the face. And the circle is this to some degree as well. The circle could be empty uh, or as it symbolizes Mu, but it could also be full, um, which could symbolize enlightenment. Those could also be vice versa as well, depending on which figure and ground you want. And the circle of samsara uh, is also important as well because it's these cycles of suffering and I thought, well, that's interesting. And the way as the circle is, is a symbol, you know, that mentions enlightenment and the void and, and emptiness and all these sort of positive terms in Buddhism, but circles are also the nature of samsara and of suffering and of dukkha. And I thought, well, this makes sense that we have an image of suffering as, as our, our logo, so to speak. Um, after all, the first noble truth is suffering exists. And you got to look at it right in the face. Um, and by looking at it, we, we maybe can learn what to do with it and can transcend it somehow. But we first have to have the attention to it. And I thought, oh, that's nice. We in Buddhism, we're, we're so clever. We have this images, imaging of suffering. We're, we're fearless. And we just put the suffering right up there in the center 
other religions must not do this. And I thought, well, that's not true. Uh, the image of the, cro of the cross or the crucifix is an image of a, of a brutal, senseless murder. Um, and I thought, yeah, there's, there's uh, some sense in, in having that reminder of suffering in the cross um, makes sense. Um, I also thought of the term research, which we like to tell our students when they say, well, I, I did some research, but I couldn't find anything interesting. I said, well, you know, you, we, we say, well, go back and look again. That's why they call it research, because you search again. Uh, it's a repetitive process. And another a synonym for research is investigation. We talk about investigate what's going on. Um, circles allow us to research what's going on. We've seen it once and now it's back. And we didn't get what we needed the first time and it's back so we can look at it and, and learn from it. Um, I was thinking of the sort of ultimate cycle and well, not ultimate, but one very important one in our practice and in meditation is the cycle of the breath. And how it's a, how it's such a mystery. We don't know what we're supposed to get from it. It's, it's something that we can't look at enough. I was thinking of recently in my chess playing, I've been frustrated with the last part of a chess game, which is called the end game. And I often get into end games where I'm winning according to the computer when I look at the computer analysis at the end of the game, but I lose them all the time. And uh, I get really frustrated, think, oh, another end game that I've ruined. And again, what, I should be researching this. I should be investigating this. I can learn. And there's, you know, there's resources. If I, it's a trivial example. Getting better at chess is not necessarily on my path to enlightenment, although who knows? but gives me the opportunity to research it and I can look at it and, and improve. Um, but what's the, you know, I, I, in a sense, chess is a game of complete information. So there really is in the end game, most of the time, an absolute objective best way to do it. Um, and, you know, grandmasters can find that most of the time, but there's no objective best way end results objective analysis of our experience and of our consciousness. And I think we get frustrated with distractions and meditation, uh, but this is what we're looking at, the, our, our consciousness, the cycles of our consciousness of what appears to be attention and distraction. And, you know, the, the light gets in somewhere with our distraction. Um, and the attention wouldn't be, be much without it. And just as the wheel or the, the wheel of samsara or the, the Zen circle can be a symbol of enlightenment or of suffering, I think um, we can't separate out attention and distraction either. So um, yeah, just a reminder for myself, this, this whole process of coming back to my practice after such a long lapse is uh, one of one of patience really uh, more more than anything of I have no idea what the 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 truth is of that lapse and I, I cannot call it negative or, or positive but but just look at it as as it arises um, so yeah that's all thank you